1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Tony Dagaronyake evans about his new book, Teaching Native Pride, Upward Bound, and the Legacy of Isabel Bond. Tony Evans, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Annabelle. It's good to be talking with you today.
1: Tony, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Well... Um, I live in Haley, Idaho. It's a very small town, Southeast Idaho. I've been working at a newspaper for many years now, the Idaho Mountain Express newspaper based in Ketchum and Sun Valley. I started my journalism career, uh, freelancing primarily in New Mexico, writing for the Taos news, uh, Santa Fe, New Mexican, um, and I took a staff job at the Mountain Express about 15 years ago. Um, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder, where I studied cultural anthropology, biology, geography, and um, I'm a member of the Mohawk Nation, the Ganawaga Band of Quebec, where my mother was born. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, where Mohawks have been for generations now, steel workers primarily, uh, but I've been living out west for 35 years, and uh, I've always had an interest in native culture, and I've always looked for stories to write about native history and culture uh, wherever I've been living. So, I guess it was a natural progression for me to start writing books. Uh, about Native history. Now that I'm out West, um, this will be my second book. First one involved the Shoshone and Bannock Nations, which are close to home here in uh, Blaine County, Idaho. And um, I continue to work as a, a city beat reporter. I'm a columnist and I write features and other things. And so I'm writing books on the side and I also lead and um, teach creative writing workshops for a number of years here.
1: Wonderful. And how did you come to write Teaching Native Pride?
0: Well, the the short answer is I was invited to by some dear friends. Um, I've been writing at the Mountain Express for a number of years, and I had a uh, series of articles that I wrote about Uh, Native history right here in the Wood River Valley. And um, those articles were eventually turned into a small book that was accepted by the Blaine County School District. And so it's used in middle school classes, also high school. Um, No one had ever thought to write a history of this particular area. Um, I reached out, as I think we always should, to the nearby nations, um, talked to a uh, people at the Language and Culture Department at Fort Hall Reservation, and um, retired chairman of the tribe there, Lionel Boyer. And uh, after a couple of years, we put together this book based on those articles, and I was contacted by a retiring school teacher by the name of Darlene Dyer who I've worked with now for many years and uh, the first time I heard from her she wanted me to write well she wanted me to review essays and writings from her high school English classes as an outside uh, reader and I did that for a while for her and um, I suppose she gained some confidence in my sensibilities. And uh, one day, a year or two later, she said, Tony, uh, I have a project for you. I'd really like you to take interest in. And so I was introduced to the Upward Down program at the University of Idaho, and a remarkable woman by the name of Isabel Bond, who uh, was a director of the program for... Uh, more than 30 years. And I was told the basic idea for a story. Um, I realized that Moscow, although it's quite far from us here in Southern Idaho, I realized that that was Nez Perce territory. I did know some things about the Nez Perce tribe, of course, about Chief Joseph. And um, so I, I went north to Moscow and I met with Isabel to see if this would be my next project. And, um... We went to Applebee's restaurant in Moscow, we sat and had a good long talk. She told me about her history in the region going back um, three generations and um, to the frontier era, really, and her uh, grandfather, Daniel O'Connell Gamble, who was a missionary in the area, she told me about her childhood home in Paradise Ridge. Um, this beautiful high country in the Palouse area, there, where there was an Indian trail that crossed her family's farms, and she knew this from when she was a little girl. Told me about her uncle Gus Gustavus, who had spent a lot of time with the Nespers tribes when um, he was a young man. He was a, also a friend of the legendary cowboy nesper's cowboy Jackson Sundown. And um, she started telling me stories, talked about the Upward Bound program that she was drawn to and how uh, the influence of her uncle had led to her learning some of the language and more importantly, just making friends. I think so much of this book is about friendships. And um, Uncle Gus was kind of welcomed into the tribe, spent a lot of time at powwows and um, when the job opened up for Isabel, she jumped on it and stayed with it for many, many years. I, um, decided very shortly to take this on and knowing that it was going to be an in-depth exploration of a college preparation, um, uh, program that involved Native kids from Nez Perce and Coeur d'Alene tribes and other tribes, but also a lot of non-Indian students who, uh, many of whom had, um, whose families had suffered from the collapse of the mining industry in that part of the world. And uh, what they all shared was they were generally um, at-risk kids or um, needing, certainly needing financial help to go to college, but also academic support and I was fascinated by this program because it involved what I presumed would be an acculturation experience between these two um, populations of kids thrown together on a uh, major university campus. Many of them had never stepped foot on that campus before. They all wanted to go to college, and I, I, I was really um, drawn to the story when I was Um, given these yearbooks from all of these years of Upward Bound, these six-week intensive course years, um, and saw how much I could learn and how much I could build a story from. And I had sources. You know, as a journalist, you look for a story that hasn't been told. You look for sources. You look for uh, something that you can build a story around. And um, so I went to the tribe was invited by Bill Picard, then vice chairman of the tribe, and also a graduate of the Upper Down and Bridge Programs, and a good friend of Isabel's. He said, come on up here and make a presentation. So I, I did that. I met with the uh, a committee of the executive council, told them who I was, uh, where I came from, mentioned my Mohawk background as well. And um, pretty soon I was off to the races, the so, newspaper wrote an article about the project and about Isabel. They gave it a thumbs up right away because Isabel had such a tremendous reputation in the community up there among several tribes because she had dedicated her life to um, getting these kids into college and through college and oftentimes into graduate school. And um, I wanted to learn about her and her charisma and these rather idealistic teachers who would spend their summers, most of their summers up there working for. So then I started interviewing people. And uh, that opened the doors to a number of interviews with people like Mabel Blackie and Josiah Pinkham, Luke and Suzanne Penny, um, Otis Halfmoon, Chris Meyer, and many teachers and counselors along the way. And um, I decided that I would let the story go where it needed to go. Um, and base it on the interviews. And then I, uh, along the way, and simultaneously, I began my research. That's great.
1: Thank you. And we're going to get to know some of those folks as we talk today. But before we do so, I want to talk a little bit about the historical context of your book, which takes place, as you mentioned, in the heart of Nez Perce and Cridolin homelands, Here is where connections between past and present are deeply powerful. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the historical context of Northern Idaho. What kinds of historical research did you do for this book?
0: Well, for those who don't know, Northern Idaho um, in this particular region is what's called the Palouse country. And it's um, geographically extraordinary. I had never been there before this and these long rolling hills i don't know how many millions of acres of farmland up there um, cut through with deep river gorges and um so the geography of the area like like any native communities the you know the uh, culture the mythology the sacred places are tied closely to the land. So I realized that I need to learn about the territory, uh, primarily of the Nez Perce tribe, because they were closest to the university. And the upper bound recruitment criteria uh, required that students be uh, drawn from a 200 mile radius within the university campus which is rather arbitrary, I suppose, but in this case, it happened to sweep across two um, Indian reservations in the area. And so suddenly the opportunity for these native students who um, earlier perhaps had not been um, encouraged to come to the university campus or to learn about uh, university education Uh, This is the late 60s, early 70s. So um, times are very different. And um, I I started reading books. So um, right away, I was sent to the culture department there, and Josiah Pinkham, who I ended up interviewing for the book a year or two later, uh, he's currently the ethnographer for the tribe. He sent me a a guide, an in-depth, detailed guide to the Nez Perce historical park which is an extraordinary park that um covers more than a thousand miles in three states um oregon idaho and montana and so i started gaining um some cultural information historical information stories about culture heroes and mythology and um, that, that provided an outline for me for the the crux of the book, which I knew later on, would be the 1989 Chief Joseph Trail Entourage trip through the mm, Nez Perce National Historical Park. I also had to read uh, several books came up right away that were um, sort of classics on the region. Alvin Josephi's Nez Perce Country of course, and also Merrill Beale's I Will Fight No More Forever, about the 1877 War, otherwise known as the Chief Joseph War. I read Lucullus McQuarker. I hope I'm saying his name right. He was this rancher, Lucullus or Lucullus McQuarker, and um, he wrote Yellow Wolf in his own words, which was a book uh, written about the 1877 war from the perspective of one of the last survivors of the conflict who was present at the Battle of the Big Hole, Big Hole Battlefield, which is a big um, tragic moment in that particular war that was just, just been an indelible part of the, of the history of the region. Um, I was certain that I would be using um, Yellow Wolf, but also Alvin, Joseph, and Merrill Beale, also, Kim Stafford's having everything right. Um, Kim Stafford uh, was recently the Poet Laureate of Oregon, and um, he's gotten to be a uh, valued friend and advisor. And he had written about the Big Hole Battlefield in an essay called Ten Miles Short of Wisdom. And that is Ten Miles Short of Wisdom, Montana, which is where... The Big whole Battlefield is. It also serves as an apt metaphor for the state of mind he was in at the time. Um, and I found other books along the way when I traveled north and spent time in Lapway and Kamiyai and Moscow. I found Bonnie Lewis's book, Creating Christian Indians, which was very interesting. Um, it uh, really is an account of how um, Indian nations have been putting their own stamp on the Christian faith for a long, long time. And, um, and I started rereading some other things, you know, find Deloria, Jack Weatherford's books I had come across in college, I was just trying to kind of immerse myself in ideas because I didn't really know exactly what would come up. And um, but a lot of my research was, moving forward from there, was kind of… Uh, um, on a need-to-know basis, I suppose. I'm not a an expert on Nespers' country, by any means, or of Coeur tribes or the cultures there. But I had this confidence that I could kind of feel my way through it, and using the interviews, I'd be able to identify the necessary research. And, um, and, I've, and this uh, subject has been important for me for a number of years. You know, I've continued to read and. Native American studies all the time. That's what led me to the New Books Network, actually, because I found out there are all these new books in Native American studies that I could listen to and hear about before uh, deciding what to read. But other authors like Thomas King and now Rick Estes and Sherman Alexie and I think I re- I, I did reread um, Leslie Martin Silco's Ceremony that I really like. And anyway, that's, uh, that's kind of a overall picture of my of my research for the book but it tended to grow from the interviews themselves and so that's how the plot such as it is developed and i i knew i was heading for this 18 i'm sorry 1989 chief joseph trail summer and that gave me some confidence that i had a, a structure for the book And so then I was able to kind of wander around in Isabel's legacy uh, over those decades and um, focus on that summer in particular, which became more of an expanded, um, kind of an immediate reportage of what happened that summer.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about Isabel Bond, who's your main individual focus. She has a heritage that's very bound up with Nez Perce lands and peoples and history in the region. Can you talk a bit more about Isabel's background, how she became so passionate about education and community service and indigenous history?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so Isabel and I spent, um, Only a few periods of time in conversations and in interviews and her pointing me in various directions um, before she had a fall. And um, I was a year into the book and i lost my contact with her personally. She is still recovering in an elder care facility up north. But before that um, tragic event, she told me about her Grandfather She told me about Lola Clyde, her mother, who was a um, remarkable woman, who a real child of the Palouse. Um, she wanted to study law, but she instead became a teacher. I worked as a teacher for many years. The family of her mother and her father was um, had a large farm around and below Paradise Ridge, and during the Depression. Um, there were there were some um, big losses for many people in the area, of course, and uh, they struggled through the depression. Um, Isabel was a young girl when all this happened, and uh, it impacted her uh, very strongly. You know, she has a frugality about her and a, and a practicality about her. Um, I'd asked uh, Isabel, oh, you, "Your grandfather was a missionary. You must have quite a uh, interest in in the faith um presbyterian faith and um she said no not really (laughs) and uh but uh she had thoughts about um the missionaries in the area that i found very compelling um so i i knew that there was going to be a certain um focus on religion and faith which echoed straight through uh, the book in ways that I was yet to learn. The eighteen seventy seven war um, had a lot to do with who was a Christian uh, Nesperson, who was a non Christian Nesperson, a non treaty Nesperson, someone who had um, uh, rejected, you know, some of the negotiations that led to the loss of a large part of their territory um isabel was steeped in the history of the region because of Lola clyde and reverend gamble and her family and she read widely she knew these people from the nez tribe her mother was a famous civic leader Lola clyde was very well known it's a legend in the area so i started delving into into isabel's background a little bit to build a sort of um portrait of the influence that she received growing up. And Gus Gamble, who was friends with Pete McCormack, a Nez Perce man who they were uh, working together during and after the Depression, Her Uncle Gus lost his farm, and wound up um, being taken in in some ways by the tribe and spending a lot of time with them where he learned the language a little bit. I uh, went to powwows. Isabel was um really into horses and uncle Gus gave her uh what he called an Indian pony and uh she rode horses and um focused on working on the farm and um i believe was more interested in that than she was in um uh, learning uh scripture by heart which a lot of the grade school kids around her had learned because they were living in town and uh she takes a very practical view Toward life. And it's um, very compassionate toward the Native people in the region. I think she took that to her work. And that's why she hired people like Lucinda George and Mari Waters and um, many other uh, counselors and teachers from the tribes who would continue a uh, tradition that. The Upper Bound founder Ed Madsen had started. Now, Ed Madsen was a Ned's purse man, basketball player, school teacher. He took over Upper Bound when it first arrived uh, in 1969. And uh, he really set the stage for what would come in the years to come to be um, called. The Indian Program—that was the nickname for Upward Bound until very recently—was called the Indian Program because no one had seen so many Indians um, at Upward Bound on, or, or at the U of I before. It was it was a, quite an event when this took place, and um, Ed Madsen was was tragically killed in a hunting accident um, a couple of years later, and. Um, there was an interim director who quickly left, I think one other that quickly left. And Isabel stepped forward and said, I, I want this job. And she, she took it on and she continued what Ed Madsen had started. Um, so that's a little bit about Isabel's, um, Isabel's background.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about those early years of the Upward Bound program at University of Idaho, which really, as you just mentioned, start to take off in the early 1970s. Who else was involved in those early years? And why did it become known as the Indian program? And most importantly, what did this early generation of participants in Upward Bound gain from this new experience?
0: I got the impression from several people I spoke with during those earliest years that the um, the nature of the program uh, made people feel uh, at home on a university campus. As I'm sure you know, uh, you know the first time you ever go to a college campus, it can be a little intimidating. The University of Idaho campus is, is grand, you know, and it's, um, uh, you know, it just has a certain architectural power to it and all of the buildings and all of the work going on there in the libraries. <clears throat> These are high school students who uh, many of them had, uh, this is their first time encountering that kind of environment. And it was challenging for that first generation. Um, there was still quite a bit of cultural and racial prejudice on reservations and in high schools. Um, Otis Hepburn, uh, one of the first people I interviewed, and who's from those earliest years, he and a number of other students who are listed in those early chapters um, went to Ed Madsen and said, "You know, we need to we need to do our thing here a little bit because I know we're here to learn about uh, academics, but you know we're Native people, and so." They went to the administration, and they petitioned the the campus, I believe it was a college uh, president, and they they asked to have the dormitories that they were living in on campus designated as temporary reservations for the time that the upper bound students were on campus. And this meant, among other things, um, allowing for certain cultural practices, one of which was gambling. Otis described to me these gambling games. Um, I've seen similar versions down here in Shoshone-Bannock territory, they're stick games. And um, they're they're rather complicated for me to understand, but these are very, very old um, traditions in the game that people use to, uh, you know, brings people together. And that's something that they enjoy gambling was outlawed on campus, but uh, they made a concession and allowed for uh, these gambling games to proceed. Um, They also had mini powwows on campus. They would bring in drum groups um, where people could uh, sing and um, wear their regalia and have powwows. And so I think this, this change allowed Native people to get an idea that or Bound was something that they would feel at home in and that would open the door for the teachers um, to engage with them and to get busy with study skills, with um, mathematics, with science, uh, with laboratory work, with um, composition, literature and everything else. So and, and people from that, earliest, uh, those earliest years went on to do um, great things. Um, Chris Meyer um, is now the head of the uh Coeur d'Alene Education Department. And um, Otis Chapman spent a career working for the National Park Service, incorporating Native American history into, uh, I think he worked with more than 150, Uh, federally recognized tribes over the years and as a cultural relevancy specialist. Um, There are several other well-known people in Indian country today who uh, look back to their Upward Bound experiences very favorably. It gave them the idea that college is something that I can do. This is something that was not often discussed in their communities, their home communities. Bill Picard, who I mentioned before and eventually wrote the introduction to the book. Um, He was told when he was in high school uh, by um, the teacher, he said uh, he was spending a summer um, picking rocks Mm. and um, loading hay bales and someone had come up to him and said, um, I'm not sure it was a teacher exactly, but I believe it was. I'll have to check that. They said, keep keep doing that farm work because um, Indian kids don't go to college. Indian kids also had, you know, in their lunch tickets at the, at school where, you know, they had this big they got green lunch tickets or red lunch tickets instead of green and they, you know, with the big with the word Indian printed across them. So it's just this sense of separateness and disenfranchisement, I think, that has kind of been built into the system for a number of years. Built the card, of course, graduated from Upper Bound and has worked for the tribe for many, many years. And um Many of these people went to graduate school and um, have moved on to be models in their community. So those were the earliest years, and then uh, Isabel took over from Ed and tried to continue and to expand on what he was doing, all while meeting these strict federal requirements for the upper bound um, program, which I should say is designed for uh, and specifically geared toward young people who would be the first in their families to ever attend college, that was a, a requirement. And they oftentimes were um, coming to the program with uh, challenges uh, from their uh, home communities, academic challenges, sometimes they were behind in their studies. Um, Isabel felt at home with them, I think, because when she was a young girl, she had been, I think, um, uh, looked down upon in some ways by some of the kids from town who, you know, were memorizing a lot of things and really highly dialed into their um, school curriculums and Bible studies. And uh, Isabel was a bit of a tomboy. Um, she did go to the U of I herself and became quite literate. But, um so that, yeah, that was the early years, um, and uh, I suppose, uh, well, when you read the book, you'll be able to learn more about the uh, individual stories that they tell.
1: Hi. Something about the Upward bound program at University of Maryland, this is largely due to the presence of so many Nez Perce and other indigenous students, as well as the aims of Isabel Bond is this culturally particular curriculum that highlighted indigenous histories and identities. Let's talk a little more about what that curriculum looked like, how it came to be, and how it shaped indigenous students' experience at Idaho and beyond.
0: Yeah, well, these, um, the teachers that I've interviewed for the book, and counselors as well, um, they were um, typically young, um, sometimes student teachers, And they took on this summer project because they had a passion for it. And oftentimes, um, well, you know, primarily there were were non-Indian teachers from from Chicago and elsewhere who really didn't have a, a deep understanding of what was going on out west. And so they were rapidly trying to learn about the history of the region. They were experimental in their teaching techniques. They would use popular culture you know, as a starting point, they would use jukebox songs, they would use um, sports heroes, you know, as a way to get people working on their writing assignments. They also incorporated some new techniques that were being brought to Idaho at the time, like uh, the Cornell note-taking method uh, used for, and also study skills. the retired uh, professor emerita eleanor michael brought uh, cornell note taking method from um, a similar program uh in the midwest and the these 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 um, techniques were combined with um the stories of the land really um like i said you know native culture is attached to the territory and places have history, you know, whether they're uh, myths and legend, culture heroes, sacred places, like, um, well, in Kamiya, there's the heart of the monster, which is uh, central to the creation story of the Nespers but many other places there and the teachers uh, made an effort to incorporate native stories, native literature, along with uh, the many federal requirements that they had for the program, whether it was science, math, foreign languages. Um, so, yeah, they worked to balance these these things together. They um, offered treaty classes. And if you're a Native kid, you want to know about your relations to the U.S. government and the history of that relationship. And so um, kids learned about their treaties. Um, what those treaties mean, how they were, um, whether or not they've been lived up to. There was also an English class that uh, Darlene Dyer told me about but I thought was fascinating. Um, she brought books about Jim Thorpe, for instance, you know, to give Native kids an idea of, of um, sports heroes that were uh, Indian. And also, she brought books by James Welch, um, Authors who were writing about situations on reservations that they could relate to for their for their English classes, and um, she also brought a story uh, stories from world literature um, like Beowulf, you know, Beowulf and the monster Grendel, and um, you know the story of the Danes and the Scandinavian cultures, these great hero epics and found parallels between, in this case, uh, the monster Grendel, and uh, the very well known um, mythical monster um, central to the creation story of the first, In that case, a monster who swallowed up all of the animals um, at some point in the, in the past, and uh, coyote got inside the monster with some stone knives and cut his way out and he freed all the animals and the monster died. And uh, where the monsters, uh, various parts were scattered became all these different tribes in the Northwest. But the heart of the monster is an actual geological formation in the town of Kamiya. It's a very uh, peculiar anomaly, I think, a pile of I believe it's basalt stones about 40 or 50 feet tall with no vegetation around it, it really stands out and that's known as the heart of the monster that's where uh, the Nez Perce the Nimiku um, recognize as their origin place um, so you got Grendel you have the monster the origins in the Nez Perce these are the kind of creative ideas that the teachers were trying to use to ultimately just capture the attention and the imagination of students who still had a long way to go in their education.
1: I'm so glad that you told that story about the comparison between Beowulf and the Nez origin story. It's totally fascinating. Um, I want to jump ahead a few years uh, into the late, 80s. Uh, so 20 years into the program's founding, Isabel Bond and other program and community leaders organized this immersive historical trip that took students along the Chief Joseph Trail. How did this kind of experience that provided Native and non-Native students alike with the opportunity to really engage with Nez Per's history at new depths and dimensions set Bond's program apart from other Upward Bound programs? More broadly, what kind of model does this provide for the ways that historical immersion support and uplift indigenous communities and ways of sharing historical knowledge?
0: Well, each upward Bound summer had a theme to it. You know, one summer it was the wolf, you know, the Nez Perce are well known for their work in reintroducing the gray wolf to uh, the Northwest when the state of Idaho um refused to follow the federal mandate um another summer they focused on the horse it was the theme was the horse and they spent a lot of time at the uh, equestrian center veterinary center there on campus they learned a lot about horses That's per sir of course legendary uh horse breeders of the appaloosa and uh in nineteen eighty-nine, on the twentieth anniversary, Darlene, Dyer, Isabel, they met at a hotel in some cold January night, and they put together plans for a summer, the following summer that would immerse all the kids, native and non-native, and on their and their families too, wound up joining along and counselors and teachers. They would immerse them in uh, Nez Perce native culture and history. That became the theme for that summer. In fact, the foreign language for that summer was the Nez Perce and language. So kids would also be, have an opportunity to learn language a little bit. Um, also the medicines, uh, culture, the history, and of course, as they took this drive, some 800 miles, uh, in their trailers and their teepees that they set up every night from the Wallawa Mountains to the Big Hole Battlefield. Um, Over many days, they read books like I Will Fight No More Forever by Beale. They read the essay that Kim Stafford wrote about the Big Hole Battlefield. And these teachers, uh, I believe it was a deep learning experience for them as well because they enlisted the support of a uh, very interesting person in the book by the name of Mari Waters, who uh, was rather fluent in the culture and language and um, was also, I believe, she was studying for a master's at the time at U of I. And Mari Waters helped walk them through uh, many of the places that they would visit, beginning in the Wallawa Mountains. Um, the homeland of Chief Joseph's Band, uh, which he was forced out of in 1877. They camped at Wallawa Lake. They met with Alvin Josephi, um, the great historian of Native culture who was there doing a Fishtrap Writers' Conference. Darlene knew about the Fishtrap Writers' Conference. Many famous writers were already spending time there. And uh, she said, that I thought they might want to actually meet some of the kids who were descended from these, um, the, the native um, historical figures that they were learning about. And so she brought them there and they um, they met with Alvin Josephy and James Welch and Kim Stafford, and they got their lessons right there. And they also shared their own stories. And... Became inspired to write their own stories as they went on, and from there they went um, back toward Lewiston, and then uh, up the river to Kamiyai and eventually the Big Hole battlefield. And all along the way, they were studying archaeological uh, finds, you know, that date back thousands of years. They were studying stream biology, learning all about. Uh, the macroinvertebrates in the river from Rudy Bosch, science teacher, <clears throat> who brought along a telescope and a microscope. They went to whitebird grade and um, studied fossils that had been uplifted into the mountains from an ancient seabed. They got familiar with the geology of the region, the deep time and the history of the region, but also the cultural um, history through Mari Waters, who engage in ceremony and storytelling and joke telling and they went to talmax place where the the, uh first presbyterian congregations had met for generations uh she told all these kids stories about their parents and grandparents and um it was a magical summer everyone i've spoken to who was involved oh like tana wheeler uh they they told about how gratifying it was to really be immersed in a landscape that, you know, of course, you know, you're a teenage kid, you don't, uh, you might not otherwise have gotten such a in-depth, multifaceted view of the region. And um, certainly left a um, lasting impact on many of the teachers and in particular, uh, their visit to the big hole battlefield. Where there was a, uh, a clash between U.S. government soldiers and uh, the Nez Perce, who, eight hundred people, had been fleeing the army for months and thought they were had found their way to safety across the desolate Lolo Trail to Montana, and uh, when they got there, the uh, the army was waiting for them, and they were attacked and um, some of the kids in this group had relatives uh, ancestors who had fought in the war and they knew it very well so oftentimes the teachers were learning from the students and oftentimes the teachers were helping to guide the students through reading and understanding the history of the region the non-indian students um, were impacted deeply and i found uh quotes that were written from back in that day. Some of those students are no longer with us. um, Talking about the impact of the experience and how much fun they had. And it was quite an adventure. And uh, Isabel really had her hands full, keeping keeping everybody safe and, you know, on the move and putting up the teepee every night and having classes. You know, they'd have a science class right there um, where, you know, Lewis and Clark, first came out of the hills, starving and desperate when they first encountered the Nez Perce and were taught how to eat camas uh, to survive. And so having an opportunity to use the landscape, the region, which, of course, has a deep significance to its original inhabitants, using that as a teaching tool, and in the case of the nez first having a delineated national park that that was very helpful because a lot of scholars and researchers had put a lot of time and effort into developing these various sites ancient cave sites but also um, places where um, ancestral uh, mythological um, figures had um, played a part in the unfolding drama of the Niimipuu people since time immemorial. They spent time on the rivers, um, and they enjoyed one another. They they had a lot of fun, and there's a lot of joking along the way. Amari Waters uh, kept everybody laughing and um, understanding the significance of who they are as Nesper's people, and the non-Indian kids um, who might otherwise have not been so exposed to Native culture at that age gained a whole new respect for uh, the Indigenous people who lived there before. And the tragedy of the War of 1877 had a way of bringing people together in a common sense of, of, of mourning for the tragedy that transpired at the Big Hole battlefield. And so I was able to use those sources from the yearbooks to recreate that summer. And um, a lot of fun things happened, a lot of tragic things happened that summer. Um, So it was uh, an opportunity that I think teachers could recreate pretty much anywhere in this country you know, uh, all up and down the California coast, uh, in uh, Pueblo country, in Montana, um, in the Midwest, you know, uh, wherever you have a history and a surviving uh, native community and government, which, of course, there's more than 500 federally recognized tribes now, far more than there were when I was in college. And uh, I learn about new ones all the time. And um, they each have a story to tell. They each have a school in which to um, educate their kids about the mainstream culture while at the same time educating and and celebrating their own culture and communities. And many um, schools, high schools, colleges, I suppose, who want to begin to incorporate the regional history Um, into their own curriculum might find this book a suitable model for how to do that and um, learn about the challenges, but also the rewards of doing such a thing.
1: Earlier, um, some of the things that upper bound participants went on to do for their communities, uh, for their nations, and many of the upper bound participants went on to use specific skills that they developed in the program to serve their communities. What are some of the ways that indigenous folks involved in the program have used their experience to serve their communities, nations, their relatives, so on?
0: Yes. Well, I would not personally try to judge the value of a person's Education in terms of well, uh, professional success, or or even an academic success. It's um, I, I do as a journalist. I look for specifics and details um, from each individual's personal experience, and certainly many people came out of Upper Down and went to pursued a higher education when they told me they otherwise likely would not have because of the, the way the program was designed and supported. <clears throat> um, Bill Picard, I mentioned the vice chairman, um, he's worked in a number of capacities, he's no longer the vice chairman, but I think now he is reflecting on a long career helping uh, the next person fisheries, salmon recovery, which is you no know, salmon but uh, sacred ancient food source for the tribes, and the Nez Perce are deeply involved in uh, the salmon recovery efforts, which are ongoing, and um, something I occasionally keep up with in my journalism career, water rights, um, treaty obligations, governance of a sovereign nation, which is quite quite complicated, and um, takes a lot of administrative skill and uh, dedication. I believe Bill also worked as a teacher. Phil Allen came out of Upward Bound, and he's a professor now at the Northwest Indian College in Lapwai. Um, He teaches students now, a second and even third generation of Upward Bound students who are learning about their history, their uh, relations between the US and the First Nation, and in the whole list of legislations that have impacted Native people across the country. You know, for many generations, Indian Reorganization Act, the Dawes Act. Um, you know, um, the moment when Indian nations could gain control over the schools and the education on reservations. You know, the kind of courses that Bill, that Phil Allen teaches, really give you an overview of uh, many of the. Um, trials and travails of, of Indian nations for hundreds of years, and do focus uh, on Nez Perce situations, of course. He described how other Northwest Indian colleges are more focused on, say, you know, the, the geography and the, and the circumstances of, you know, places further down the Columbia River. And so they have different focuses. Um, other people uh, like Mabel Black Eagle works for the tribe today. Mona Daniels, um, much younger generation than the elders who first came in. And she works at the Coeur Tribes Child Support Services. There are a lot of other students who went through this program, hundreds more, like um, focused on almost all of the ones who stepped forward for interviews. Um, Some dropped out. Um, Most of them stuck with it and started to gain confidence in the project as time went on. The um, I think it's also really important to remind anyone who might read this book that this book is also about the non Indian people as well. That was one of my original um goals was to write about the acculturation it goes both ways um there was a there was a, a young girl named Cheryl Merrill Joseph Foets now her new name <clears throat> and uh she's a non-indian girl who grew up who was living at uh in her teenage years in a in a tent in forest idaho a very cold place up north and uh, uh, with her parents who were kind of back to the land anti-government hippies and uh, as she described it and um, they um, she came from a, a dysfunctional home surely as she describes it as well and she was adopted into the uh, Nez Perce community of Lapway, into the family of Peggy two hatchet and Cheryl told me that this was a godsend for her during her junior year of high school. She'd never really known the meaning of family and community. And uh, she found herself going to powwows and crow fair. They got her a pony named Cochise, an Appaloosa pony. She spent time with, uh, with the Waters family. And Cheryl um, remembers the period at Upper Bound as just having a remarkable influence on um, the rest of her life. She went on to, uh, she just retired from a career in the U.S. Navy as a religion specialist, and she's made sure that her kids know all about uh, the Nez community where she lived when she was young and has taught them those stories. And when she goes to work overseas in uh, relief efforts in Africa, she, she tells me that uh, it's real easy for her to get by in, in uh, rough circumstances without services and amenities because of the way she grew up. But she also uh, really connects to the Indigenous people when she's in Africa because um, she understands somehow the, I guess, the reciprocity that she experienced and also the um, the way that the Nez Perce were eager to share what they know and give her things to do and welcome her into a community. I believe that is an enduring feature of Native communities. and. Um, Robert Seward who, uh, you know, he was from one of the towns that suffered from the mining collapse in in that part of the world. And he's now pursuing his um, academic pursuits. He's studying World War II, uh, does a seminar on it occasionally. And uh, so when he first came to Upward Bound, you know, he'd never really been around Indian people before. He started learning all about you know, the tribes, the treaties. he went, he ate buffalo for the first time, he went to a powwow, and it was very eye-opening for him. And uh, he stayed on and worked for Upward Bound for a number of years, as did Connie Fleener and so many other non-Indian students who would come out and eventually work as counselors alongside the native counselors. Uh, Greg and Janet Torline, who were on the 18, on that 1989 Chief Joseph trip trip, Uh, they tell me that it it really had an impact on their lives and their lifestyles moving forward. Um, You know, at a certain age, uh, an experience like this can have a tremendous influence on the way you live your life. And um, I believe that when people are able to make friendships, cross-cultural friendships, and learn to... Uh, respect and admire one another for who we all are. Um, It's a big step toward moving beyond um, what has been a very fraught and um, tragic legacy of this uh, American experience. Isabel and her teachers really set a tone where there were no cliques and there were no, she said there was never any strife or Friction or conflict between the white kids and the Indian kids and all the issues that I found that to be just remarkable Sometimes, you know the native kids would would get a hard time Especially early on from people on campus that whoop at them and tell them to go home to the reservation and stuff like this um, But when the upper bound people got to know one another and worked together they were all upper bounders They felt like they were all in the same tribe They all had the same goals and they learned together. And many, many of them went on to get their college educations. So this history of Isabel Bond um, at that time, I think uh, could provide a model for what um, what could happen elsewhere.
1: 2006 was Isabel Bond's last year with Program, but many people have sought to carry on her legacy. How has Bond remained cultural retention by way of education?
0: Well, Isabel is a bit of a legend in the area there, and um, her. Upward Bound has changed quite a bit. It's morphed into the trio programs of which Upper Bound is a part have been administered very differently since she left. And there was quite a bit of outcry when she was dismissed because she had a very hands-on approach to everything. She showed up at powwows and at funerals. She went to the events that matter most to the Native people in that part of the world. And as she described to me, she said, if you want to work with people, and help people, you have to understand them, you have to know who they are. And that means personal relationships. That means, you know, knowing the circumstances that people come from and um, learning about their families and how they interact. a it's a, a big extended community up there and um isabel had the courage and the determination to apply herself to these many many relationships and you mentioned her name in that part of the world and people know who she was and what she did for people she had one um one very effective technique for supporting her students that oftentimes her students didn't even know about But she would have teachers write letters home after a week or two of the program, home to the parents. Oftentimes these parents were saying, you know, we're curious, well, where are my kids, where are they really going? What are they doing out there? You know, it took a lot of convincing for some of the Native families to, um, you know, send their kids off to get um, exposed to, quote, unquote, white education. You know, the idea was that it would undermine or it could undermine their own sense of identity and separate them from their communities. That's a very real fear. Isabel would send letters home and explaining the the fine attributes of this individual under her care, whether they were very good at math or science or making great progress in their social and study skills. And this is something that the teachers were trained to do and the counselors to find what was working with these kids. Some of them came from third-generation alcoholic families. Some of them had been in trouble with the law, serious trouble, you know, juvenile detention kinds of things. And she found something positive about everyone and celebrated it. And when the parents of these kids read these letters, they perhaps began to look at up or down and also to look at their kids in a different way. And it created a, a feeling of competence in the students. And she talked many kids into staying in the program who really wanted to drop out. And many of them were facing deep despair homesickness, alienation. And um, many of those stories are told in the book. Isabel's legacy lives on and I feel honored to have participated in uh, organizing these stories and, and sharing it for future generations. I I think it could inspire a lot of people, a lot of teachers um, and students moving forward.
1: Well, Tony, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you. What are you working on?
0: Oh, well, I have uh, several projects underway. I'm still working at the newspaper part time and writing my column. And um, I also I've recently gotten involved in a documentary project that, um, with a recent graduate from Bozeman who um, I'm going to be supporting as a producer, I suppose, and uh, the Shoshone Bannock efforts at uh, salmon recovery, which have been going on for decades. The Shoshone Bannock tribes down here in southern Idaho—they um, were the they initiated the um, endangered species status of the Sockeye sockeye, and this is the highest reach of. Uh, the salmon in their run 900 miles from the ocean. And uh, I've written about this recently and over the years, the newspaper covers the efforts at salmon recovery and uh, the consensus among the tribes living all the way along the river corridor out to the ocean that they need to get rid of these dams that are really blocking and have just destroyed the salmon runs forever despite billions of dollars in salmon recovery efforts. So we're going to see how that goes. I'm using some of my sources here. And um, working on that project, I'm also writing a memoir, which has a been workshopping in my creative writing workshops for the last few months. When this book came out teaching native pride, one of the uh, scholarly readers, the anonymous reading circle asked who I was and what I'd say more about myself, and it got me on a little project i'm really enjoying it's very fun um i'm calling it a mixed blood odyssey (laughs) and it's uh it's allowed me to tell some stories from my own life nobody's ever asked me that before and it's been a lot of fun my wife is tuscarara she's a member of the tuscarara nation another nation of the haudenosaunee iroquois people and um i'm having fun with it it's uh you know i feel like i um and the authority over my own experience in a way that I might not be in writing about others. And so I'm able to have a little more creativity and actual, actually it's funny. It's informative, but it's also, um, it's, a, it's enjoyable. And I'm also looking for other collaborations. So anybody out there who wants, uh, to engage in things, I like working with others and, um, I'm always looking for my next project. I have three, new projects that I'm editing. Uh, One is a scientist who discovered a a new species of freshwater river snail in our area here. Um, And um, a couple of other, I guess they're autobiographies primarily, but they tend to have to do with science and spirituality at this point. So I'm working as a supporting editor and co-author in uh, three projects right now.
1: Tony, those sound like wonderful, important projects. Thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Take care. Hey, it was a pleasure, Animal. Thanks for taking interest in my book.